Hi friends, this is Evan. The last time we spoke was about two years ago. I had a podcast that was formed out of COVID lockdowns called the Quarantine Storytellers Podcast. My hope was while personally navigating isolation, social distancing, and even living alone, I wanted to find a creative way to curate stories from the wonderful friends that I had, no matter how far in between they may have been. For you all, I hope it was connecting. I hope it was entertaining. But for me, selfishly, it was therapeutic. The summer of 2020 presented very large challenges for us, not just as a country, but as a world. Navigating the ever-changing COVID restrictions in the illness itself. On top of that, we are facing major social issues regarding police violence in black communities, amongst many other things. The deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd all occurred and echoed within weeks of each other. It sent the country into an entire frantic divide. You might remember one of the last episodes I recorded of the Quarantine Storytellers podcast. I sat down with my friend Cameron Marshall to discuss his stories around interactions with the police. I believe this was important because Cameron does not look like me. He's a black man, and I wanted to help bring platform to tell stories to where people who don't look like each other could sit down and talk about our differences as well as where we can find connection and empathy in the middle. Things were going pretty well and the adhesives of storytelling was binding many listeners together. But then, due to an unforeseen turn of events, I lost my job. Now, of course, during this time, many people, because of COVID, lost their job because of layoffs and pay cuts and so on and so forth. I lost my job because I got fired. Today, in a mostly uncut episode, my goal is to tell that story of how my life changed during the summer of 2020 how I get to the point where I'm at now. I'll also be talking about my work inside the church. Now, I'm not labeling this podcast as Christian, let alone religious, but you have to know this is part of my life. Even if you, the listener, have church baggage, have rejected the church altogether, or have very negative notations of what the church is, I still encourage you to listen. Normally, my plan is to keep episodes relatively concise and at an easy length to listen to. Today's pilot episode will be slightly longer and a little more uncut as I mentioned before, so keep that in mind. Today, everything is going well. I actually just turned 27. This is my birthday today. And I'm happy to bring back a podcast that celebrates storytellers and encourage the audience themselves to be storytellers. I knew, though, that if I was going to tell the story of getting fired and still loving the work I do, I needed to enlist some help. So, get comfortable And welcome to episode one of The Road Back. No hard feelings. This phone call was to my friend Johnny, who is currently at Northern Kentucky University working to earn his master's degree in social work. He's fortunately one of the best listeners I have in my friend group. It also helps that we are similar in thinking, and in spirit, and in heart. I called him one night to recruit him and helping me process all of these things. Arch nemesis. Hello. Hello. Johnny, can you hear me? Yeah, you're on speakerphone. Dude, that's sick as hell. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. How are you? I'm not like, I'm not on speakerphone in front of anybody, am I? Yes. Yeah, Amy's here. Oh, no. I'm so glad I didn't say anything incriminating. (laughs) Uh, What are you doing? I think it's worth noting that when I call him here, he's still at Northern Kentucky University's counseling office doing his internship. In the background, you'll hear his boss, my friend, Amy. 
I, however long you want me to be here. So, uh, a couple things. I would love to go to Texas Roadhouse tonight. Um, yeah, me too. I'm not. Amy, I, well, anyway, Johnny, I'll set another question for you before we move on too yes. far. Uh, would you help me record the first episode of my podcast? Absolutely. No. What, Amy, stop answering for him. He's busy. He's busy. He works for me now, not you. <laughs> well, well, uh, I am recording this phone call, by the way. You are? I am. I'm talking to you through my headset and microphone. That's great. Hey, tell you Okay. Happy Thanksgiving. Can I call you back in like 10 minutes? Yeah, please. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye. After an impromptu Texas Roadhouse dinner, Johnny and I make our way back to my house to do an impromptu sit-down and discussion. I figured if I was going to talk about one of the most interesting but difficult and complex times of my life, I needed someone who could help me process. How do I even begin to sum up a large chunk of my life? As some background, from 2014 to 2020, I was involved with a megachurch in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I worked with students in both middle school and high school. In 2017, I was asked to come on an adventure of a lifetime that would eventually end in 2020. Where do we where do we begin? Where do I begin? What if we started? Yeah. At the beginning. Okay. I like that. Just like that transition. Well, with what we want to talk about, I guess I'm kind of interested in uh how you how you got to the mega church to begin with. Great question. Well, I uh if you don't know this about me, I it started with when I was growing up. I love storytelling. And this is a big reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I think storytelling of anything is something we can all agree is like an adhesive that we can all pursue and we can all like be excited about. And no matter who you are, to be encouraged to be a storyteller. Like I think storytelling grows empathy and compassion and understanding for people that you come in contact with. So I wanted to be a storyteller. Mm. I loved all kinds of different mediums of storytelling. The one I loved the most was actually not podcasting. It was actually filmmaking. Mm. So from a young age, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Uh, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a filmmaker, loved movies. In high school, loved making movies. I would write scripts. I had, a, I had good friends that I would film things with, and we'd have these dreams about being like the next Coen brothers or something like that. And we were going to move to L.A. and make movies and do all this stuff. Um, but, you know, it's very difficult to make movies. Right. Very, very difficult. Um, I went to Northern Kentucky University for like less than one semester because it was a chance to study electronic media and broadcasting. But I was not a good traditional student. Mm. Right. So um, all the time being, uh, despite the fact that growing up, I hated nothing more than church. Mm-hmm. Hated church. Hated. Uh, I went to a Baptist church growing up. So, like, I'm thankful for that, that, that I had a family that took me to church. I look back in retrospect and I'm like, dude, how crazy. What was it that you hated so much? Um, there's this level of inauthenticity. Right. 
and like people who were very intrepid about being honest. Mm. It always felt like people were not being honest. And I always like described like family gatherings as like walking on eggshells mm. and you had to be careful about what subjects were brought up. People could get their feelings hurt very easily. And it felt like God, uh, and I'd say all this in retrospect, eight-year-old Evan would not have said any of this because you're learning it, you don't know. Eight-year-old Evan would have been like, oh, this is, uh, this is like, this is just church. This is what you do. Mm. I look back now and I'm like, uh, there's a lot of uh, things to contend with. Um, the, the inauthenticity, this kind of idea of I think there's some people who are okay with creating the gospel for a certain kind of group of people, white, straight, rich, mm. you know, you name it. Um, I also thought that the heavy handedness with the, the preaching of burn or turn or mm. like they love talking about hell and they love talking about death. Like I really think I got my first obsessions with, with death and all that kind of stuff because I grew up in the Baptist church, but they, uh, they just, you know, hammered that heavily into you. Uh, and I knew that at some point, the difference between heaven and hell was the fact that Jesus was the reason you didn't go to hell. Mm-hmm. And so I was I feel like I was more enthralled with not going to hell than I was delighted about going to heaven. <laughs> you know? yeah. So I chose uh, through an upward basketball camp to get baptized, which is so funny to me because I was so bad, like embarrassing at basketball. But you got baptized at this basketball camp. I got saved. At this basketball camp, okay, like I, I did the prayer. I rose my hand, yeah. said that I wanted salvation or whatever. Got it. Was baptized two weeks later by Pastor Tim Alexander. God rest his soul. He's dead. Yeah, <laughs> as you could imagine. Uh, but nonetheless, that started my journey, and and then when I was finding my way into like uh, high school and stuff, I just didn't care anything about the church. Yeah. I think I liked the idea of God still, and I wanted to pursue God, but I wanted nothing to do with church. But luckily, fast forwarding a bit, I had this group of friends that were authentic. They were loving. They were funny. And I had leaders in my life, like adults, mentors, who were funny and charismatic and like really cared about me. Mm-hmm. So that's why I got into it. Like I, and I loved, I actually fell in love with, man, when ministry's done right, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And again, this, this is not a... Christian podcast by any means, but it's part of my story. Part of like, hey, I do believe when ministry is done right, Jesus is accessible to everybody. Right. Like we, we, we make it too complicated for people to accept Christ and then try and follow Christ. So anyway, uh, in that path of when I was like not feeling, I was not a great college student. I didn't want to be in college anymore. I was starting to really enjoy ministry, like doing ministry and I had this vision to do student ministry because it's still like check the box of I still get to feel like a storyteller when I do this. And so I was like, well, hey, I still get to be creative. I was being creative still, still making videos and like doing short films and stuff. So why not do student ministry? So I went like full in with it and mm-hmm. like gave all my time, especially when I was 17, 18 years old, like jumping in with it. What I did was really rare. A lot of my friends went and took different career paths, but yeah, I stayed the straight and narrow and like did ministry. And so uh, 2015, I was looking for something new, wanted to get out. And a friend of mine named Pat West, shout out Pat, was working at one of the campuses 
that belonged to this big Cincinnati megachurch. Hmm. I did not really want to go to this big megachurch because our church that I grew up in, that I found in high school, uh, we had taken this nosedive. There was a lot of bureaucratic stuff that came up, leadership disagreements, a lot of people leaving the church. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people started going to this big Cincinnati megachurch that I was like, man, that's the cool kid church. I don't want to go there. My friend Pat invited me. He worked there at the time. I could trust him because he's like, okay, well, here's a guy I met who works there. He's pretty chill. He's invited me to come serve. And it was high schoolers. Like It was their high school ministry. So I jumped in. Were you still going to the new church that you found with your friends at this point when Pat invited you? Uh, I was. I was like, like kind of tethered between the two. Mm-hmm. Like wanting to serve, wanting to stay at this home church, this place that I had roots at, and also jump into new territory where it wasn't comfortable, it wasn't new, and I, I was. It actually came down to a conversation where the current youth pastor at my home church was like, "Hey, you got to do one or the other, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like what you choose. If you stay here, great. If you leave, great. Mm-hmm. Like God will still be honored by your decision." So. I decided to go out on a limb and, and so I'm going to go pursue this new thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the, the mega church, the big place, the place on the hill that everybody wants to go to that seems really cool and flashy from the outside. But I went and it was because of students that I went. Mm-hmm. Because when I went, I never even went to a service yet. I'd never been to anything like that. What I experienced first was how good they worked with students. How well, let me say that uh, in a correct sentence, but... They worked well with students. Yeah. Like the the amount of diversity the student ministry saw, it, whether it was in socioeconomic, whether it was race, whether it was people in different corners of, of sexual orientations and the LGBTQIA, uh, all kinds of students showed up to this thing. And it was beautiful. I'm mm-hmm. like, man, this is what heaven's going to look like. This heaven that we all talk about. This is what I think it's going to look like. It's mm-hmm. going to look like this. So... um. I jumped in, started leading high school guys there, loved it. I loved everything they're doing. I was basically like, all right, whatever they're doing, I'm in. Like, I'm full in. I want to be a part of this place. I figured since I'm serving here, I might as well start going to services. So I'd go to services there. Started to let this kind of big community shrink for me. And uh, the rest was really history. Like, I mm-hmm. fell in love with the place. And, and I just felt that God was like, hey, like stay here, yeah. stay here. You're being called to it. There's a purpose for you here. There's a clean slate for you spiritually. There's also opportunities for you here to grow as a pastor, as a teacher, as a creative. So I stayed, but, um, yeah, that was, I, I, I guess jumping ahead a little bit. I mean, I was a part of forming student camps. Like I was part of those teams. I was part of doing that. And, and those those years were really beautiful. And I was just a volunteer. I was an intern for a little bit. Was not getting paid anything. But at the time, I loved it so much. You know, when you love something so much, you don't even care. Right. Like, I would sacrifice money. I would sacrifice whatever to be there. Um, I told you this story about, you know, my dad setting up a job interview for me at a DHL, which we're, mm-hmm. you know, here in Cincinnati. We're so close to the airport. I couldn't even go to the interview because I was like, no, I think God's calling me to this. Mm. I'm so stubborn. I'm frustrated about being stubborn, but I'm like, I'm so, I feel drawn to this. I should wait. Just mm. See what happens. Wait. It's always like my thing in life is 
what if the thing is right around the corner? Yeah. And if you cut it short, you might not ever see it. Yeah. But that maybe that's being stubborn. I don't know. Mm. So anyway, uh, there's so many just anecdotal things that I could talk about that why those first two and a half years were really beautiful doing the ministry. Um, and at the same time, this scale of church, and this is not, I'm not criticizing them at all, but this scale of church was new to me. And you, I was bought in this idea of like these, we're aggressive and we run really, really fast. Right. Like that's, that's our thing. Right. This light kind of reminds me of that old church, by the way. Oh yeah. I can see, <laughs> I can see that. Uh, we got the themes going on here, but, uh, and I, but I like that because what I hate is people who sit around and like aren't proactive about pursuing people. If Christ is this thing, this figure, this this being that we strive to be like and strive to live through and in and, and trust that that's where our salvation comes from and our purpose and, and all these great things, why do we not pursue it aggressively? So I agreed with that. I was like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, oh my gosh, let's go, let's go, balls of the wall. <laughs> we yeah. are gonna, we are gonna baptize some people." That had to be a pretty powerful contrast too, coming from a Southern Baptist where it's pretty right, exclusive. Yeah, to a just aggressive fire for. Yeah, right. It was. It was like the Baptist church was would be okay with the same people. I think tithing to keep it the way it is right no change no progression it's the same thing you know i remember that same church that i went to growing up i remember you'd hear stories about oh oh my gosh we have a band now on stage and people would leave the the church in droves because there was a full band and they had electric guitars and drum sets and all that kind of stuff like that was crazy whereas this place this mega church Mm -hmm. was like no that's what we do that's the secret to the pudding is like lights and sounds and cameras and yeah. we're gonna have and, and I like their quality of worship of content of teaching all that stuff was like was amazing mm-hmm. it was good stuff like I love that it was like wow mm-hmm. these they're very passionate if you're called to be creative why not do it the best you can do mm-hmm. why not run as fast as you can run because why I don't know that's God's calling us to something greater right. so I was bought in uh, I remember like being a barista and like just feeling like something has to change. I, I want more responsibility. I mm-hmm. want to step up. I'm in 21 years old. Like I just turned 21 and I wanted more. I went through one more camp season as a volunteer and an intern for this place. And again, I would say that these camps that we put on were still some of my favorite memories of all time. Like mm-hmm. I, there's, I always say there's a special version of Evan that's still locked away at those mm-hmm. camps where it's like, man, how good, how how good are you, God, and, and the things you see, and just the mountaintop moment, right? Like the mountaintop moments you, you hear people talk about. So, um, 2017, a mentor, soon-to-be boss of mine, called me. Yeah, this lady, his name was Kim. Uh, love Kim. Still a good friend of mine to this day. She calls me, says, hey, what do you think? And I was kind of looking at wanting to come on staff at this time, exploring mm-hmm. options. I really wanted to stay in northern Kentucky, Cincinnati area. They had just launched campuses in central Kentucky, Georgetown, Lexington, and Richmond. Mm-hmm. 
Richmond, if you don't know what Richmond is, they now have a Bucky's. And that might be their biggest claim to fame right now. If you don't know what Bucky's is, it, I don't Google it. Google it. I don't know if it's worth going to one. They they kind of give me anxiety. I actually went to this Bucky's not too long ago. Terrible. Not terrible. Just it's like a Republican search history. It's just a gas station, right? I mean, I've never it been is to a Bucky's. At the bare minimum, a gas station. Just a big one. An excessive one. Mm. Excessive gas station. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, if you're buying one, you should swing by. I bought a hat, but I, real quick, I'm. So when you were envisioning yourself going on staff, was that in a creative role, or did you envision yourself going into a pastoral role? I think when I went in, I saw the opportunity creatively, and felt like I was being used creatively. In a good way. I was like being able to be deployed to use my creative talents and things that God had called me to do to doing ministry. However, the more I was doing the student ministry there and seeing, hey, like speaking, I really enjoy teaching and speaking. Mm -hmm. I enjoy leading worship. I'm a musician, so I lead worship. I enjoy one-on-one mentorship and coaching and discipleship. Mm -hmm. Like discipleship is so good. Love discipleship. And when I realized that that I enjoy that stuff a lot. And people saw me as an out front figure. Like you're not like people would say, you're not a behind the scenes guy. Mm-hmm. You should be out front. You should be a face here in student ministries. Mm-hmm. And I was because I was extroverted. People knew who I was. I talked to anybody. We go to camp. I was on stage and I would never tuck myself away. Like I would always go and make sure I'd make the rounds, meet people, meet kids I didn't know. And also just be present for my leaders and my students. But um, so, yeah, at, at that point, I was like, yeah, I think I'm ready to take on a site director, pastoral, youth pastor role, if that's what you mm. want to call it. So Kim calls me. Hey, what do you think about going to Richmond? And I was like, I was a little torn because Richmond was not on my radar. Mm-hmm. But I was also convinced that. Sometimes God leads us to places we don't want to go at first. Easily, the answer easily could have been, well, what about a bigger site? What about mm-hmm. in Cincinnati somewhere? What about a site you're familiar with? Because the, the site that I was at in Florence was hiring. So what about that? Richmond. And I was pretty confident, and I was just like, I, this feels like an answered prayer. And she's like, well, think about it. I said, I did. And went and immediately talked to my parents and told them I would begin the, I like called her back the next day. I was like, I'll begin the process. It wasn't a job offer. I will say that it was an offer to interview for it. Mm-hmm. Like with strong favoritism, I'd say like I was the favorite to take on such a role. And you came back within a day and said, yeah, because I was like, you know, I remember all that year, like, God, I know you're calling me or something. I know there's something bigger coming. And I know that God is not just about occupation, but the, the one of the themes about this whole thing is ministry is not just occupation. It has to be a calling on your life, mm-hmm. right? It has to be a calling. And to me, it felt like a major calling that I had on my life. Yeah. So calling. Calling. Um, you can't, you, you can't, 
be crazy enough to do ministry unless you feel that it's it's just bestowed upon you, right? Like we have to believe God calls some of us into ministry the same way he calls people like, okay, I'll be a mechanic mm-hmm. or any kind of trade. Like I think occupation is not limited to like God. I don't think God exclusively cares about occupation. Mm-hmm. But considering for as long as time has been around, people spend a lot of time in an occupation, you know, making ends meet, whatever it is. So, um, you don't have a lot to gain either from vocational ministry. Like you could have done a lot of things with your life. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I was okay with that because that to me felt like true calling. Right. Like plant trees in whose shade you will not sit. Mm-hmm. Like I live by that. It's an old Indian proverb. Uh, I love that metaphor. Like all these things, all that I just believe will mm-hmm. cease and end and crumble and break. But I believe Christ won't, right? Mm-hmm. We believe that. The capital C church won't. Mm-hmm. I think it, it, it might change. Reformations, things like that. I don't think it'll die. Um, but lower C churches do all the time. Especially at this rate, that's just like at any moment, it's like uh, your church could close, mm-hmm. you know? And I'll talk about that later, too. That's kind of part of it, too. But anyway, has to be a calling. You have to be ludicrous enough to accept a low amount of pay for relatively thankless work. Relatively existential thankless work is what ministry feels like. Knowing and trusting that... Guys, if you hear ambient noise, it's I don't have a professional studio. I've got some dope redneck neighbors that like to hem and haul on their hemis. And uh, you might be hearing an engine right now, but that's okay. I think the general Lee just drove by. <laughs> but anyway, you have to be... You have to have some kind of higher purpose to do this. Right. Because on paper, it's not flattering. Right. You're going to do something. You're going to grind. You're going to create environments for people who may or may not get the point. Mm-hmm. And this is all a choice. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if there is a God, I'm thankful that he's given us a choice. At least that's what I believe. And it's all a choice whether you can follow him or not. And yet, you're working a job where you're trying to convince people that following God is worth it. And at the end of the day, they can either say, yes, it is, or they can say, no, thank you. Mm. Not for me. And I've, and and that is difficult. Like you got to develop coping mechanisms on how to deal with the rejection, mm-hmm. deal with people saying, nah, no, thanks. Mm. So, and how to not crumble when your, your life's work is, not accepted. Right. If you, yeah. my life's work is people. Yeah, right. And people, I come to realize this through all this, are not projects. People right. are not projects to be fixed or to form or to fit in a mold. They're dynamic, complex people, figures. Right. Uh, also not to be put on a spreadsheet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Gosh. That comes into play a little bit too, all, all this. But again... Yeah, it's just complex. So anyway, uh, I go through the interview process. That was took about two months, which seems long. But I know some other people that worked for this place, and they were 
interviewed for years. Like I swear, like I have a friend named David who was actually on my last podcast. He was part of my last podcast. He, uh, when he got interviewed for his job, I think his interview process was like nine months to 10 months long, if not longer. I could be wrong, but wow. Yeah. And when you're wanting so badly to jump into something and yet you're kind of, for lack of a better word, being dicked around about it, Mm -hmm. it's like, come on, you know, my process is two months, Mm -hmm. two months. Pretty good. Got in. Um, I like I had to work out some weird kind of resume stuff. Like I was figuring that out. I, like my I worked so many part time jobs growing up. Mm-hmm. Like you know, dirty jobs with Mike Rowe. Oh yeah, this was part time jobs with Evan Maines. <laughs> you know, like that was my first show that didn't get recorded. But I swear I had like nine or ten part time jobs. Mm-hmm. I had to explain that because it kind of looked like I didn't stay at any place for too long. <laughs> you know, I didn't hold down any jobs. In my eyes, I'm like, they're stupid part-time jobs. Who cares? Right. Uh, in their eyes, it was like, is this guy, is he in? Is he committed? Went, went through, ended up getting a job offer. The amount of money was ridiculously low. Mm-hmm. When you're 21, though, any salary is better than no salary. Mm-hmm. So I was stoked. It's like, yep, sign me up. Love it. I'll take your job offer. Got the job offer. I met several times in the interview process with what would my white would be boss would be. Mm-hmm. His name is a guy named David. Another guy named David, different than the last David I just talked about. And uh, this guy would become my boss, and and he was a real kind of charismatic guy, but he was a smooth talker, mm-hmm. gentle guy. And and again, this guy uh, kind of became like a father figure to me mm-hmm. when I left home to move and do this job. So it was right after the summer of 2017, I started making the shift to moving down to the Lexington, Richmond area full time to do ministry. And, and that was like the first time I ever left the nest, Mm -hmm. right? Like I went to NKU, which is a 15 minute drive from my parents' house. I didn't leave the nest. Like I was pretty sheltered for the most part. Mm -hmm. Like I stayed close to home. I had friends that left the nest. I was kind of envious of that. So at 21 years old, this is the first time I really left home to go live elsewhere. Um, Do you think the friends leaving the nest played into that a little bit? Of just a kind of like a desire to seek a new adventure. Was that part of it? Was that a, I know that at first it was like a Richmond, Kentucky who wants to go there. But uh, a little bit, I think. At first, when you all start leaving high school and people are like, oh, I'm going to school out in Colorado. I'm going to Mm -hmm. school in Florida. And I'm going to NKU where I would eventually drop out and stay home. There was always the fear of like being the guy who got stuck at home, Mm -hmm. which now I'm like, dude, you know, who cares? Like this is this is great. Mm -hmm. You know, this area is great. I've actually traveled more. And once you travel, you're like, it's okay to have a home base. Everywhere is really the same. Everywhere is the same. You get to enjoy aspects of it, mm-hmm. but you can always leave and say, whew, I'm glad this is in my home. Mm-hmm. Like I've been to a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the time, when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, I never really traveled. Like never went on big adventures or anything. Like that. I was an adventurous person. So I left the, left the nest. And um, yeah, I got hired. And, and jumped in with this really 
This is my first time with like a small town. Mm-hmm. You're a small town. Nobody liked us. We were. What had happened was former big church in Lexington, Kentucky got essentially bought out by this larger church in Cincinnati. Fun fact, they shared the same name, which is kind of funny. They combined churches and the three campuses in Lexington now were under the the guise Hmm. of the Cincinnati churches. So from the Northern perspective, being up in Cincinnati, this looked like, Hey, cool. Wow. We're expanding. We're growing. We're being aggressive. This is what Mm -hmm. we're being called to do. Uh, However, I would say for the Southern perspective, from the Central Kentucky aspect, it was a buyout, Mm. corporate buyout. You know, you leave December 2016, you come back January 2017, different signage, different paint jobs, different communicators, Mm -hmm. new staff people. Big city church coming into Richmond. Yeah. 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 Like, and no one really asked for it. Mm-hmm. So I came into a town where nobody at first, like nobody cared about what we were doing. Nobody cared who we were. Nobody cared that we were like this big Cincinnati church, like you said, growing and expanding. Cause when you're a little town, you want it to remain that way. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand that at first. It, it takes time. Once you live in a little town, you're like, I like the preservation of this little town. Mm-hmm. I don't like... It's like, what's eating Gilbert Grape? Mm-hmm. Did you ever watch that? No. That is such a shame. Uh, Christian Bale? No, no. Leonardo DiCaprio and Johnny... Pads. <laughs> no. <laughs> is that it? No. No, dude, it's Dark Knight. Oh, yeah. you're right. You're right. <laughs> no, dude. It's got Leonardo DiCaprio and Johnny Depp and some other people. Is like quintessential late '90s movie. This family lives in a small town. There's really interesting dynamic. Gilbert Grape is Johnny Depp's character. Arnie Grape is Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Uh, they got this big old mom. She's really overweight. Like she became overweight. It's such a depressing movie. She became overweight because her husband killed himself. Dude, wild. It's wow. wild. They live in a small town. I remember there's a scene where uh, they're at like a funeral and. All of a sudden, this big supermarket chain comes rolling into town. Mm. And Arnie, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who is autistic, goes freaking nuts. I forget what the place is called, but he's like, yeah, they're coming. Here they come. And right. he's interrupting the funeral. So it's it's very, oh. it's like a very cynical kind of look at like uh, Midwest American, the attack on like small towns and things like that. Yeah. But beautiful movie, incredibly depressing. Mm. Like that's one I watch alone with no one else. It's very depressing, but that's what Richmond remind me of a little bit of what's eating Gilbert grape, kind of that vibe and how we wanted to preserve the small town. New businesses did not do well in Richmond at all. New business would come in six, seven months later that the, the build the building they were in would be empty. Mm-hmm. So coming in as a big church or at least little package of church from, from big town up North was not received well from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Now I'm thankful because there were some like core families that stuck that stuck around and saw through the change. We were also great that if you came from the Cincinnati area and moved down to Richmond or Lexington for whatever reason, people are like, "Hey, cool, you guys are here. I'll start joining you guys." Because it was a little piece of home, little piece of comfort yeah. for people. So 
hive indigestion. Sorry, but a little bit mm-hmm. of uh, that familiarity. So anyway, uh, I came down and it's like people hated us. People, you know, and I didn't really feel it as much because I was the northern guy coming to the central Kentucky area. So I had this perspective of like, yeah, hey, we're awesome, right? People are like, no. I met this guy at a coffee shop named Kent one time. And Kent was like, oh, yeah, everyone there is a snake, but welcome to town. Like, whoa. Cool, man. Cool. But that's pretty, uh, pretty alarming. Yeah. I made it a goal, though. I said, Kent can hate us like as a church but he's not going to hate me mm-hmm. and every time i saw him i'd hug him i go can't get in here <laughs> give him a big hug and i didn't i was just like i'm gonna kill him with kindness i'm gonna kill him with love but you know i wanted him to see that even though you can hate the place we're gonna be friendly to you yeah i wanted to show him that anyway started out i we had like 15 to 20 kids i was a youth pastor down there got hired at what was officially called the site director of student ministries for uh richmond site richmond mm-hmm. campus uh, there were two other sites down there. It was Lexington and Georgetown, so I had a small little team. We were working pretty remotely because uh, we were from, I mean, an hour and a half away from the headquarters. Mm-hmm. We were considered the Southern Frontier Campus. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was like, that was our job. That was our goal. And so um, it was the first, I was in charge of middle school, high school, and college age ministry. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Okay. Crazy big responsibility yeah and and i was taking that on as a 21 year old uh, uh the first year was like really more focused on middle school and high school but it was always like this assumption that i was going to do college ministry the later the longer i was there college ministry became part of that and that became like a big i don't know so anyway is that the way that a cincinnati campus would function as one person over all three ministries that would be pretty rare yeah, because these, like yeah, right, right. These bigger campuses had more resourcing, more more people to separate out, more money, more tithe, so they could have people focusing on uh, one area, maybe two areas, maybe with other student directors. It was oh, you do middle school and high school, mm-hmm. but that makes sense because it's not a departure from the other thing, mm-hmm. right? It's it's so much similar, the same thing. Whereas I was building up middle school and high school ministry and then creating from the ground up college ministry. Mm-hmm. Cause in Richmond you have Eastern Kentucky university. We were, we were determined to have some kind of ministry presence on that campus. So that's what I did. And for the most part, I would say we were successful. Mm-hmm. Like we grew the culture that we created at our ministry was actually one I loved. It was like, this is where you came if you got kicked out of your youth group. Mm. Like, I know some ministries up here carry, like, the party. Like, oh, you guys are the party church. Oh, oh, the kids who party go to that ministry. Uh, well, I'm talking about Young Life. I guess I can talk about them. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't sign an NDA with Young Life. At least I don't think I did. But, uh, no, here's the I'm not okay. bashing Young Life. No, <laughs> listen. I'm not bashing Young Life. I love Young Life. Mm-hmm. And I modeled that, a little bit of their model. I took some of their model down to Richmond with me. And we became this highly accessible youth ministry. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about like, oh, we're going to have a bunch of church kids here. Right. You wanted to reach everybody. I wanted everybody. I wanted like, I wanted the kingdom there, baby. Like I wanted everybody. Yeah. And when you want everybody, you get everybody's problems. 
Right. You get their baggage. You get you get all kinds of kids who come from troubled home lives, drug users, um, people have been abused, people who are dealing with you know addictions and things like that. Where it's porn addiction, I would say sex addiction. Like we had students struggling with sexuality type things. Uh, you also just had again the diversity of like kids from different backgrounds, kids from different socioeconomic backgrounds, race. Kids in the LGBTQIA were showing up. This was the place you came when you got kicked out of every other youth group. Yeah, and I freaking loved it. Yeah. Like, I never think a youth ministry should be like a safe haven for people who play church to come and like, oh, finally we're protected. The doors closed. Let's just crap all over the rest of the world. Right. This is a place you could come, be heard and be seen, be understood. Yeah. Uh, I was. I was living on about $650 every two weeks, which is like, at the time, you're like, this is normal, right? Hmm. Every time I tell this to people, they're like, hmm. And I didn't expect much. I didn't have a ministry degree. I came in off the streets, basically, to do ministry. So I was trying to make that work. But after a while, I also, the new thing was too, was um, because of, the, you know, that way I talked about how fast we ran. Mm-hmm. That catches up with you after a while. Yeah, burnout. Yeah. Oh, burnout was like, it was like the cuss word, like the B word. Oh, really? Yeah. Like no one wanted to talk about it. <laughs> and it was scary because you were like, oh, like people would ask, hey, are you burning out? And you're like, no, 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 I'm good, man. I just need a little rest. I'm a little <laughs> tired. You know, I just need to abide in God a little bit longer and I'll be good. But after a while, you're like, I think I'm burning out. Mm-hmm. And it's super scary. Yeah. And you're like. No, 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 but I'm, I'm called to this, right? I'm called to this. I can't just give up. I, I can't jump ship. Mm-hmm. I can't abandon my crew and my team, Like, but I'm burning out. And I started to experience like new levels of anxiety in my life. I've always struggled with anxiety and depression. I feel from like half of my life, it was a big time depression. Big time depression is what I struggle with. But all of a sudden, there's a switch, and all of a sudden, I was anxious all the time, mm. nervous. Uh, I was trying to learn how to do this job. Maybe I wasn't fully trained to do this job. I would often say with my boss, I was getting in trouble for things like, Hey, you forgot this. You forgot Mm -hmm. this. You forgot this. Um, (laughs) I'll tell a story that will lead in to the end of the podcast. Uh, Like one time I forgot this, this, we were going to uh, camp 2019 Mm -hmm. high school camp. We were pumped. And like we were ready to go. I had amazing leaders going. I had a great, like about 25 students going. It was a big time for us. Richmond was like going to really make a, a scene at camp because mm-hmm. we were bringing a great crew. This girl who's one of my favorite students, her name's Lily. Lily, uh, one of our rules was we, we, you weren't allowed to bring phones. Mm-hmm. And she brought her phone. And when she's getting off the bus, she's like, oh, here's my phone. We're at camp, right? And I'm like, what? You're not supposed to bring your phones. What do you want me to do with this? And she's like, well, just hold on to it. I'll get it. I don't want it. Just give it back to me at the end of the week. I'm like, okay. So I take her phone. And I stash it somewhere. And I'm running around camp, like getting people together, getting people situated, make sure everyone's got bunks and beds and no one's forgot a blanket or a pillow or stuff like that. Right. And ended up, 2019 camp was an amazing week. One of the best weeks of camp I've ever been to. Because I felt like oh, I'm here, I'm doing the thing, I'm leading it. People are experiencing God in new ways. This is amazing. This is foundational stuff. And end of the week comes, 
And Lily comes back up to me. We're getting on the bus. Hey, can I have my phone back? And I'm like, your, your phone? Well, I don't have your phone. She goes, yeah, I gave it to you. I don't have your phone. She says, no, I gave it to you. And it sent me into this tizzy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, holy cow. So I'm like on the bus, like dumping my backpack out into a seat, like looking for this phone, no matter where I c- couldn't find it. This is, it was actually a backpack like sitting right here. It's an old black Oakley bag. Mm-hmm. Dumped my backpack out. Nothing, nothing, no phone. And then, okay, maybe it's in my other bag under the bus. We'll check when we get back to Lexington if it's in that bag. <laughs> I, sure enough, am like on my hands and knees ripping through my bag in front of Lily and her mom looking for this phone. Couldn't find it. And I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry. I don't know where this phone mm-hmm. is. And I guess the mom, her name is Tammy. She also used to work with me at Crossroads Richmond. I just said it. Let's, we can edit that well, out. <laughs> Cut it out and post. I'll start back. I guess the mom, her name was Tammy. I used to work with her. She actually used to work for this campus, mm-hmm. Richmond. <laughs> she, uh, she, I guess she was kind of in a good mood because her daughter was in a good mood. Mm-hmm. Lily was in a good mood. So she's like, hey, we have insurance. If you lose it, like no big deal. We'll figure it out. You know, just maybe you can call Lawson found a camp. Maybe they'll find it. I'm like, okay. So I uh, don't think much about it. I go home. I drive back to Northern Kentucky, go hang out with my parents for a few days. I call the lost and found a couple times Mm -hmm. and they can't find it. So I'm like, you know, stupid me with zero experience in this kind of thing is just like, okay, not my problem. Forget about it. Forget about it. They have insurance. They told me. Yeah. Stupid. This is really dumb. I would handle this situation much differently now. Mm -hmm. Tammy and Lily, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But either way, they... Uh, they were pissed. Mm-hmm. Tammy was pissed. You know, I mean, I can imagine as a parent, I don't have kids, obviously. I can imagine as a parent not being able to communicate with your kid for a few days would be tough. Right. Also, you have the sentimental value of if I lost my phone, I got 16,000 photos on right. my phone, like a, a crap ton. It would suck to lose those. Yeah. It would, I, I get. I get butthurt over losing like two photos, let alone uh, a whole phone's worth of photos. So uh, as any parent would, she lit me up. And by lit me up, meaning she sent my boss a massive email about losing this phone. And not only did she email my boss, Mm. she emailed my boss's boss and another boss of mine. Like everybody was on this chain of emails. And to your knowledge, before the emails, she was like, it's okay, we have insurance. I was a little blindsided at the time, yes. I was like, because again, I had a lack of foresight. That's a very adult thing to say now. I I lacked foresight to realize that this was going to be a bigger inconvenience than it actually was. Mm -hmm. And yes, as much as I could default to saying, well, don't bring your phone, it's also property that I probably could have helped to not lose. Right. And, and like people, like I got, you know, this is kind of the point where I was challenged and people would be like, my bosses and everything would get concerned over this kind of stuff. Like, can you do this job? Can you do this job? And I would freak out. Did you, so you attribute, looking back, you attribute losing the phone to 
just being overworked and kind of burning. I out. think I just I have I I I have ADHD. Yeah, and it's hard. My fear with ADHD is you either do uh, one thing really well, you just fixate on it. You do it really well. Mm-hmm. You do multiple things okay. Like I can perform multiple tasks, but they will be okay. Mm-hmm. Or the alternative is if you get overwhelmed, you quit. You don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And what I realized in the workplace is that if you get overwhelmed and you quit and you don't do perform, you'll get replaced. Yeah. You get fired. Yeah. So that really wasn't an option. Yeah. However, when these things would kind of slip through the cracks, I was always like worried that I was going to lose my job. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to get fired over the stupidest stuff. And and I think some of my bosses at the time were really concerned about perception. And like we have to maintain a good perception of ourselves. Yeah. If people think that we're not organized, they're not going to trust us. They already hate you. Yeah, and they already hate you. And so <laughs> and and I realized like there's some validity to that. Like when you work in ministry, you have to remain remain in good perception with people. If they perceive you poorly, you may or may not be like tarnishing the invitation that Christ offers. Mm-hmm. So yes, best of your ability, be graceful, but work hard to make sure you're not pissing people off unnecessarily. So I took note of that. Um, so I like, I remember having a one-on-one with my boss, like literally thinking I was going to get fired after the so time. scared. And he, our one-on-ones were already pretty intimidating. Not that he's an intimidating guy. I just felt like I was, I would screw something up and I was going to get in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. Just to just be new to the job, right? Like new at any job, you're just going to, screw it up a bunch before like if failure is not part of the process you're not going to get better but at the same time being so inexperienced and having this new amount of responsibility i felt like i was not i didn't have a ton of room to fail did you feel because of your lack of experience you were kind of walking on eggshells from the get-go i would say yes and i would say that i was more or less like faking it till i make it Mm -hmm. like Secretly, there are things that I don't know how to do this job. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to pretend I know what I'm doing. And what sticks, sticks. And what doesn't, I'm just going to not try and repeat that, even though sometimes we unintentionally repeat mistakes, mm-hmm. especially if you have ADHD. And I'm not using that as a crutch. That's just my experience, something I have to cope with. Yeah. But regardless, like there was some difficulty behind the scenes for me. I got I got ripped over this phone. People saying like, are you competent to do this job? Are you ready mm-hmm. to do this job? Did we not train you enough to do this job? People were angry at me, mm-hmm. really angry. And it, yeah, I mean, eventually the phone got replaced and life moved on and forgiveness was given. And I had to have some really tough, lots of tough conversations, like three separate meetings. And then I had to eventually sit down with Tammy. Well, she called me and she had to like, we had to have that accountability because at this place, it was biblical to be accountable. We loved talking about mm-hmm. the part in Matthew 18 where it's like, you know, seeking accountability, basically. Uh, you know, as iron sharpens iron, as man sharpens the other man. I know <laughs> that's, that's the message version. <laughs> yeah. I'm not good at quoting things. But anyway, uh, I was starting to really feel, even though our ministry was growing, 
and we're seeing, I mean, like 40 to 50 high schoolers showing up to stuff, maybe 30 to 40 middle schoolers showing up to stuff. I mean, literally, I mean, like tripling, if not quadrupling our numbers, mm-hmm. which people liked numbers mm-hmm. at this place. Big church, man. You, you can't yeah. be a big church without numbers. Mm-hmm. And again, the motto was, well, every number is a person and every person has a story. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I can get behind that. But every once in a while, it was like, come on now. Mm-hmm. What do you, you know, we're having a row about numbers. Like, oh, man, like, what if the numbers didn't change and they just stayed the same? Is that better? Like, would I rather have 40 kids that constantly attend and they grow as opposed to 80 kids who just kind of linger and come in and out as they go and all show up to events and things like that, but nothing else? But anyway, um, I'm going to fast forward here a little bit. Do you have any questions? I don't think so. Not at the moment. Yeah. 2020 comes. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm looking at 2020 like it's our year to shine. Yeah. Like, we're going to do some big things in 2020. Like, sky's the limit. We're growing. We have this really great culture right now. Things are difficult for me personally. Like, I feel a lot of fallout from doing this job that's not paying much and trying to remember that it's purpose and calling and it's not just an occupation, uh, that feeling's starting to, to to wane a little bit. It's not persistent anymore. But anyway, I felt, okay, 2020 is going to be the year we turn that around. 2020 is going to be the year that we, we overcome these feelings of anxiety. Um, like, I think I started having like anxiety attacks mm-hmm. in 2019 because I just wanted to be successful. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted it to work so bad. The thought that it would fail and that we would crumble was like miserable to me. Mm -hmm. And I was afraid that I would like be doing this church a disservice by not being able to maintain like the numbers, the growth, that kind of stuff. So anyway, um, I remember 2020, I was also feeling that maybe I need to change jobs. Like I had this feeling that this maybe the thing I was holding on tightly to was mm-hmm. coming to an end, like legitimately, like the beginning of beginning of um, twenty twenty. I had this feeling like, all right, it's our year to grow and our year to shine. But secretly, why do I feel like I'm detaching from this place? Mm-hmm. I'm detaching from these people, detaching from maybe the fact that I might not be here any longer. And how long had it been? How long had you been there at that point? I had been there for two years mm-hmm. at that point. So, which at the time is the longest job I've ever held down mm-hmm. was at this place. But beside that, it was weird because I'm like, man, I, man, I thought I, I was going to be here for like five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Like when I was in my interview, I said, I'm going to plant roots here in Richmond. I'm going to start a family here in Richmond. And after a while, I was like, yeah, I like this place. But why do I feel uh, that when my grip's tightest on something, that might be when it's time to let it go. Mm-hmm. Like, am I supposed to be the guy that plants roots? Or am I the guy that's supposed to get it started growing? Mm-hmm. And then I leave. So following this feeling, I had this sense to, to come back home, to come back to Cincinnati, come back to Northern Kentucky. At that point, I was like, the road might be coming to an end soon. Yeah. Because, unfortunately, with Central Kentucky sites, 
I think they got treated like a probing ground. If you could make it and grow and like kill it, air quotes, kill it at a central Kentucky site, maybe we'll bring you back home to do ministry at a big site. A place to test people out. Yeah, but like my thing was it was different. I would love to see any of the northern people come down and try and do the ministry we were doing. Mm-hmm. It's different. Different animal. Different beast. Talk to anyone that worked there. Mm-hmm. Talk to, uh, you know, I literally talk to anyone that came from the northern sites and went down to the central Kentucky sites. It's a different beast. Yeah. All together. That was never fully understood. And that's the one time I'll critique this whole thing because that felt like a critique. But it's honest. So... Anyway, I started to feel this feeling of like, yeah, uh, if I, I can try and muscle it out here, stay in Richmond, or I can start looking for another place to work, mm-hmm. start looking for another ministry to be a part of. Young Life was actually coming to Madison County, mm-hmm. and I was like, man, maybe, maybe I throw my hat in the ring and become like an area director for Young Life, mm-hmm. help start it here in Madison County. That didn't end up happening, of course, but... Uh, so on and so forth. We're in 2020. We're getting ready to start doing things. I remember we did a leader retreat where we took all of our leaders to like some Christian camp in Lexington, Bluegrass Christian camp in Lexington to do like a weekend with leaders where we do worship and teaching and recreation and meals together and all that kind of stuff. It was good stuff. Um, I remember one of my leaders, he was actually a high schooler at the time, it was Levi. Levi goes, did you guys hear about this virus going around China? Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? He kept calling it the Chinese snake virus. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out Levi McKay, brother. Yeah, he kept calling it the Chinese snake virus. <laughs> which was further from the truth. There's nothing to do with snakes. <laughs> Absolutely nothing to do with snakes. But he kept saying, yeah, apparently it's super contagious and it's spreading all around Wuhan. And I'm like, yeah, but it won't affect us, right? Like asking him like he's the head of the CDC. And so I don't know, man. Well, I said, oh, like I remember I wrote it off. It's like, well, it's probably a rural part of China and there's probably not like quick medical help and care and it will be fine. You remember SARS. (laughs) I didn't even hear about SARS until, you know, like... But, I mean, how many other scares right. came up where it was like smallpox? Oh, my gosh, smallpox. Right. Uh, um, Modern-day versions of the bubonic plague would pop up every now and again. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was in Africa? What was it that was? West Nile. West Nile, that was one of them. Uh, what was the other one? It, like, was know. bad. Chickenpox? <laughs> oh, dude. I don't, I don't remember. Oh, it was... Um, that's going to kill me that I can't remember this, but whatever. Jamie, pull that up. Jamie, hey, Jamie. This again, this is all in my head. Johnny's not here. Jamie's not here. I'm just sitting in a room talking to... It doesn't, it doesn't really doesn't matter. But there, there had been a lot of things that was like, oh, man. And then nothing really came of it. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, okay, it's just, oh, another pandemic. It's not going to do anything. Right. Little did I know... Chinese snake virus. Chinese snake virus, dude, bit us. <laughs> no, I remember a few weeks later, um, COVID-19 was a thing. And I remember it was starting to, like, 
oh, first cases are showing up in Seattle. First cases, Chicago. Like it was creeping closer to Kentucky. Yeah. And I remember standing. We had a middle school youth group night. I remember standing in front of youth, uh, middle schoolers and going, guys, I don't know what's going to happen. That night, news broke that that one basketball player had mm-hmm. it and Tom Hanks had it. He got it in Australia. So once those two guys had it, it was like, oh, no. This, this is, is real. This is real. Yeah. And we can't do anything about it besides wait. Yeah. We entered lockdown. Like that day, like the next day was like, I went to the office. I think maybe the next week we were locked down. So the the camp was right before. You like you're at camp when you hear I was at a retreat it. with leaders and they, and that's when Levi McKay said Chinese snake virus is here to stay. And I said no it's not. That's a hoax. It's not that big of a deal. I was wrong. Yeah. So was a lot of other people. And yeah, we're locked down. Our our work ministry which was once fruitful and life-giving and we're like meeting with people and doing programming for people and doing events for people is now reduced to zoom calls, Instagram live playing Minecraft with like middle schoolers, <laughs> you know, shout out, shout out Jake Swanson and all those guys. I play Minecraft. With. I bought a realm on Minecraft to play Minecraft mm. with them. I still pay for it. $7 a month. It was madness. Yeah. And I just sensed this great sense of isolation. Mm-hmm. That's when I started my first podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. That's when I was like, all right, I'm a, you know, and I remember at the time it was so difficult to get microphones or interfaces or anything to start a podcast because everybody was like, I'm going to start, start a podcast. A podcast right? Why not? I'm stuck inside. I'm playing Xbox. I'm doing Zoom calls. Yeah. The, my, my routine was I do a Zoom call in the morning, play Xbox and lay on the couch and look at the ceiling. The, and I call my mom. And like process what was going on. And you had that uh, that star, that disco light. Was that the same time? Do you remember that disco light? You would always post stories of you looking at this disco. Oh light. yeah, I you had like uh, the like the ball outdoor lights that would shoot like <laughs> designs on your house, and I would shoot them up at my bedroom ceiling and just pretend I was not trapped in my house. It's such a weird time, dude. I remember arguing with my roommate like just about, dude, what are you doing hanging out with friends? This could right, kill us. Like right, I was right. just, I was so anal about like, no, dude, we need to stay inside. We need to be obedient to the government and the CDC and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And I have asthma and I'm overweight. So I'm like, dude, I'm top of the Grim Reaper's list when it comes to the Chinese snake virus. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, all that time, it was like, I learned about one of the biggest falsehoods in ministry mm. is manufactured busyness. Mm. Before, it wasn't apparent because we're working in offices. We got responsibilities. We're driving back and forth between Richmond and Cincinnati. It's okay. But all of a sudden, it was like we had this pressure to produce. Mm. And I remember my boss was like, hey, I want you to fill out like a spreadsheet of your time. Like, what are you doing with your time? And I'm like, what do you mean? Bro, what do you? I'm not doing anything like the rest of the world. What did they expect you to be doing? I don't know. To this day, I think. Uh, they gave us lists of people to call and check in on, which I mm. liked. I thought that was great. We had Zoom meetings. I had like two or three Zoom meetings a day, which mm. was crazy. Like we loved meetings at this big mega church. I'll just say that. And uh, and, and and I we also I would volunteer my time to do like a prayer line so people mm. could call our church and be connected with different staff people who could pray over them, help them get resources, direct them in the right way. So I would do that. But that's not a nine to five job. 
Right. That's all like four to five hours spread right. out through a day. And then at night, as time went on, I would try and enjoy myself, right? Like I would try and make the best of the situation. My mm-hmm. roommate loved making old fashions. Mm-hmm. So we'd sit and have old fashions on our back deck. It was mm-hmm. freaking great. Um, shout out David Aldridge. Shout out David Meikle. Uh, David Meikle was trapped in Rhode Island at the time, but he eventually came back. But David Aldridge learned how to make old fashions. And we'd sit and drink old fashions mm-hmm. on our back porch and just be introspective about, man, what is going on? Right. This is crazy. This is crazy. Then you had 2020 being this kind of powder keg of different controversies with Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd dying all around the same times and trying to cope with that. Uh, my biggest thing is I just wanted to be reconnected with people. Yeah. I wanted to feel like I was connected with people. So I started the podcast, was doing that, trying to stay in touch with students, trying to maintain some sense of my job. You know, at first I felt guilty, like I can't move back home with my parents because what if Richmond needs me? Mm. But then after a while, I was like, "Dude, I don't want to move back with my parents because I'll be stuck with my parents." Right. So that there's that kind of thing too. But um, I remember it was May, like summer was just sucked away. Mm-hmm. Summer sucked. I think everyone during 2020 was looking at, okay, all right, spring sucked. Maybe we can get summer back. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can return to normal this summer. No, didn't happen. I remember they canceled camp. That sucked. Mm-hmm. Any student ministry camp was canceled. Any summer vacation was canceled. It's basically like, all right, we're going to do the same thing, but in the summer. Now, the summer offered like you could maybe go outside and like hang out with friends. You could go play Ultimate Frisbee or do stuff like that. So I started doing like, hey, kids, let's meet at the park. Let's, let's toss football. Let's do something with some social distancing in mind. End of May. Uh, I remember Andy Bashir, governor of Kentucky, okayed 10-person gatherings. 10-person mm-hmm. gatherings. The numbers were down with COVID cases. People want to get together for the summer. So we're going to do 10-person gatherings. Yeah. I remember one of the things I used to do was because I and several of my roommates were student ministry leaders mm-hmm. for high school guys. Us leaders would have guys over to my house like once a month. Mm-hmm. Very, I think, traditional kind of youth group thing. Yeah. Our house was small enough but big enough to host people. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't giant. And we and we found that it was like ministry. Like we're yeah. going to get people who wouldn't normally go to church. We're going to invite them over to our house. In a time where everyone's kind of isolated. Oh, and, yeah. So yeah. we'd already been doing this and we, we weren't able to do it for like four months because yeah. of COVID. So guys, these guys that I that I loved so dearly were just longing for connection. They were mm-hmm. longing just to see each other. So against probably my better judgment, I invited dudes over to the house. We cooked dinner. Now, it was never mandatory because I never wanted to be weird for people. But people, because we had enough space, people were allowed to stay the night if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. handful of guys went to stay the night and... And they, in a, in a fear of making too much noise late at night, they said, hey, can we go downstairs to your basement room and play Xbox? Sure. Long story short, I found out the next morning that they were smoking a stupid dab pen mm. or e-cigarette with THC in it, whatever. I, like, immediately, like, uh, it was such a weird thing. Like, I was supposed to go back to Northern Kentucky that weekend. I had to address this. I didn't find out until like 2 p.m. on Saturday. 
this whole big thing. And I was super disappointed because I always told students our job's not to numb out here. Mm -hmm. I don't want us to numb out. But anyway, how did you find out? Oh, dude, it was so stupid. I went downstairs and I like they were all sleeping in this one room. We had slept upstairs. They slept downstairs. I was waking them up because it was about uh, like noon. Like, yeah, you got to kick you guys out. Like, it's time to go. Start making arrangements to go home. And we're sitting there in the dark of this room. They're all kind of slowly waking up. I'm sitting in there with them, talking to them. A couple of them that are awake. Flip on the lights. Well, my first rule is, hey, clean up my house before you go. Yeah. So they start to clean in. I find a bag of shredded cheese on the ground. Like, huh. Okay. Pick it up. Inside the bag of shredded cheese. Like if I, a part of me, I don't know. Part of me is like, if I never looked, would I have ever known? Mm. But I looked inside, saw a empty cardboard box. Mm-hmm. Pull it out. It was a vape cartridge box. Inside a bag of cheese. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I was like, oh, guys, what is this? Like, I thought it was a vape. Like, I, I was upset the kids were vaping at my house. Like, I was already, like, pretty frustrated about that. I take the box. I give it to another friend of mine, another leader. And he's like, oh, dude. It says it has THC in it. I'm like, crap. This is a new level now. Like, this is not just an inconvenient, stupid thing. It's now like a potentially illegal thing yeah. that I have to now deal with. Um, so I sit them all down. I said, what are you guys doing? Like, this is not what we're about. We're like, I'm very transparent with you guys, but we are not supposed to be numbing out. Like we need to be embracing life. And if we're feeling something, we need to be saying something. We need to be entrusting God that God has something to do with how we mm. feel sometimes. Not numbing out. This is not it. And then, then they knew my stance was pretty, like I was anti-substances, anti-drugs, um, because it, it forces people to numb out when you mm-hmm. are addicted to those things. And so uh, eventually the kids that did it fessed up. They pulled me back in. They said, hey, we all did it. Talked to them more. And then they said, well, we were afraid if we didn't tell you, we were going to tell our parents. I'm like, guys, I still have to tell your parents, right? They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sent them all away. I drove back to Northern Kentucky that day. I said, here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to call parents. So that was a Saturday. I'm going to call parents on Sunday. I ended up getting back. It's like my dad's, or yeah, it was my dad's birthday that night. Because I came home with my dad and brother's birthday right around the same time. Dad's birthday is end of May. Brother's is the first day of June. So I was coming up there to celebrate their birthdays. And, uh, you know, I get up there and... Just spend Saturday with my family. I actually talked to my parents. Hey, this happened. What do you guys think I should do? So we think you should tell parents. I'm like, you're right. And next day comes. I'm still thinking about it, pondering it. I said, all right, Sunday evening, I'm going to call parents. Tell them what happened. Yeah. I call all these parents and, you know, all of them were disappointed, but not with me. Like they were like, man, we're so sorry our kid did that. Well, we're glad you caught them. Hmm. Right. It was this like thing of almost like thankfulness. Yeah. And I was like, guys, I'm sorry. Like, my job is to create a safe environment for your kids. That didn't happen because this had this got this snuck in. I didn't see it. I didn't catch it. I wasn't leery enough to find it until the next day. Oh, dude, no worry, no worry. And it was like, I'll, I'll do. But you're going to be a part of the conversation. Like, we want your help 
in, in making arrangements to make this right. Mm-hmm. I called my boss, told him, because one of his sons was there but wasn't involved. He was just there. I'm like, I need to tell him because he's my boss and his kid was there. Yeah. Told him, told him the whole thing. He's like, oh, okay. Thanks for telling me. Let me know how it goes. So I leave that. I'm like, wow, relatively unscathed. We're alive. We're mm-hmm. doing the thing. We're doing ministry. We're doing the, the good, bad, and the ugly, you know? And then it all started to go downhill. Monday night, my boss texts me. And he's like, we need to have a meeting. And I just start freaking out, getting all that anxiety again. This is the day after. Day you. after. This is Monday. So I called parents Sunday night. This is now a Monday uh, afternoon, late, mm-hmm. like early evening. We need to have a meeting. And I'm like walking into a hibachi restaurant for my brother's birthday. I'm like, freak, dude. What the heck? And I'm freaking out. Like me, just a wave of anxiety and panic. I'm like, this is it. And I'm like freaking out. I think there's probably like a group picture of us at the hibachi restaurant. And I'm just like, like the look of doom is on my face. Like not even there. Like just not even present. Like I got a thousand yard stare. My dad was very reassuring. He's like, dude, just trust them. Maybe they just want to hear what happened. They just want to hear. Like they want to record the incident just to make sure they, you just want to be transparent. I'm like, you're right, dad. I'm going to trust them. I text my boss back. I saw, I'll be there. It was a Zoom meeting, of course, because we're still kind of practicing COVID stuff. Tuesday, I get into the Zoom meeting about 11 a.m. And they, uh, it's my boss and another boss of mine who she was the head of student ministry at the time. Um, And then they proceeded to grill me. Justly. Like I had to go through the whole story, come through who, what, when, where, why. Um, I was told I failed my job. I didn't create a safe environment for students. Uh, I created an environment where Students could fail. And, uh, and and then someone in that meeting also said, I don't understand how you could have those kinds of kids over at your house. Meaning those kinds of like broken kids? What did he mean exactly? I, I don't know why that was said. Part of me feels like it's something you say when you're trying to cover your butt. Hmm. Like, yeah. oh, I can't possibly surmise why kids would be doing that at Evan's house. Like, why would you have those kinds of kids even at your house? Yeah. And I straight up said, because that's what I signed up for. Yeah. Like, why would I not? Right. That's ludicrous that you think, uh, you know, this kids struggle. Why? I'm not going to have them over to my house. Yeah. Why would I do that? And it seems it's completely against everything that that church seems to believe right like, right yeah. like we're supposed to be the kick in the door kind of hardcore right. like be aggressive no matter you know your your vice your sin whatever it is you're welcome as you are yeah. we're transitional not transactional yeah as it should be as it should be yeah so i was very surprised when i heard that yeah very surprised very very discouraged too when i heard that basically at the end of me they said you have anything to say and i said no uh, I th- I think I accept whatever comes after this. And they said, okay, we'll talk soon. Hung it, up, immediately freaked out. I was like, it's it. This is over. I've been chewed out before, as you've heard. Mm-hmm. Not like this. This was this was the end. You knew it was the beginning of the end. I knew it was the beginning of the end. Yeah. So I immediately called my friend Kirk Marshall, who also happened to be on the last podcast I did. Kirk Marshall is a good friend of mine that I worked with at this place. Still is a good friend. 
and he said, uh, he said, I was like crying on the phone, like freaking out. He's like, what do you want right now? Mm-hmm. I said, I want to be free. I want to be free from this. Let, let, I want to be released. Free from what? I wasn't even thinking free from the position or the job. Free from the, the anxiety. Mm-hmm. Free from the fear. Free from the guilt. Free from like this, this feeling of like, I thought I was doing my job, mm-hmm. but apparently it's not working. Yeah. Apparently I'm not doing my job. Yeah. Apparently this is a big thing. I want to be released from the feeling that I'm a liability to these people. Yeah. I don't feel that I was a liability. I feel like I was trying to do my job, trying to do ministry well. I had to uh, be unorthodox about things because we were a scrappy little place trying to do big time church things. So I, he prayed for me. Like, God, give Evan freedom from this. Mm-hmm. So went about my way. And then that night, like, it was a silence. Like, I don't know what was going to happen. <laughs> I remember I text my boss. I'm like, hey, should I um, be renewing my lease in Richmond? He's like, well, let's talk about it. I'm, like, oh, I'm tired of talking about it, man. Just tell me. Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Tell me. We can, tell me, and then we can talk about it. He goes, well, can we get coffee tomorrow? And at the time, I was still in North Kentucky. Like, I was, like, afraid to go back into Richmond. Like, I was a dead man if I stepped mm-hmm. back in foot in that right. small little town, man. I, but anyway, he, uh, he's like, let's get coffee. So he drove up to me, met me in Northern Kentucky. Also not a great sign. Not a great <laughs> sign. No one's like, I'm going to go an hour and a half out of my way to come get coffee because you're just that darn good. Right. You're just that yeah. darn funny. Evan, you did great. <laughs> yeah. I had a feeling that he that I was walking into what I believe was my last day on staff. He picks me up from my parents' house. We go to the local Starbucks. Because yeah, again, COVID still everything shut down. Like we don't know where to go, so we go through a Starbucks drive-through. We can sit on the patio out front. And I remember he picked me up, and he was like, "Like small talk in that situation is very strange." Like he's like, "Yeah, I heard on NPR this morning that they're working on a vaccine for COVID," and I'm like, "Yeah, Get to the point." Yeah, right, right. Like I was like. <laughs> Yeah, I may have heard that too. My faith is hanging in the balance. And it I is. I want to talk about it is. NPR. And I was quiet and stoic the whole time. Yeah. Like, just like, normally with him, I'm jeering and we laugh. And we still are. Like, uh, we have a relationship at this day. I'm thankful for relationships that are dynamic. And I'm thankful that, like, I can have be have this guy as a friend. And we don't ever have to worry about working together ever again. Like, yeah. that's a really nice feeling. Um Cause you know, I worked with his kids. Like I was a part of their family. We still are. And so anyway, we sit down and I said, David, listen, you didn't drive all this way to talk about NPR. (laughs) Was, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. And he says, well, I, I spoke to so-and-so and and -and so-and-so spoke to all the student ministry people, Mm -hmm. spoke to my bosses, spoke to HR. I've decided it'd be best to let you go. Mm I was like, okay, you know, and, and right then and there, I f- did feel that sense of freedom. Mm. It's like, it's not my burden anymore. Mm. It's not my thing to like stress about. Like a weight had been kind of lifted off your shoulders. Right. It was just like, whew, mm. I can breathe for the first time in months. Mm-hmm. This is no longer my thing. And then from there, I, my, it was strange. Like you think you get fired and the first thing you want to do is just like, well, dude, F you. I don't want anything to do with you. Mm-hmm. My first thing I did is I 
started like uh, affirming him, which was weird. Yeah. But I was like, I'm thankful for this. Yeah. Like weirdly grateful that any of this happened. Yeah. And if you would have slid me a contract that said, hey, come work for this amazing place. Like I always compared it to the apple of churches, mm-hmm. cutting edge, progressive, good stuff. But in three years, we'll be fired. I would have never signed up for it. Mm-hmm. I would have never gone on the journey had I know how it would have ended. Yeah. But I was grateful that I did. I gave him some feedback. I said, hey, some things to think about mm-hmm. for the next guy. <laughs> R- regarding Richmond or regarding this situation? Regarding Richmond, regarding whoever was next after me. Yeah. Whoever was to fall in line. Regarding the campus itself. Regarding everything. Mm-hmm. Uh it's just some little piece of feedback because I was like, well, I'm already fired. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like I can get in trouble for anything else, but we, it was emotional. Like they were both emotional. It felt like a breakup, not like a firing, not just a firing, but like a breakup. And he gave me the paperwork that you get explained my severance explained. Uh, I don't think I signed an NDA. I think what the form said was, Hey, don't, Trash talk us. Yeah. Like you can't leave here and go on Facebook and rip us up and down, which I have seen employees do. Yeah. I'm not one of those people. I'd like to think I'm not one of those people. I still love this place. I support this place. I've been a part of this, like some of their ministry still. I'm in touch with all the people who, like a lot of people I know still work there. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I just went about, like, gave my paperwork. He dropped me off at my house. <laughs> And, uh, you know, at that point it was just, it was cool. Mm-hmm. Like no hard feelings, right? We walk away, our hands are clean and go our separate ways. And so you felt good about it. I did. I felt puzzled, complex mm-hmm. about it. I felt good, but I was also like, like I would find myself getting weirdly emotional throughout the time that I was considering it. I'm like, bro, what the heck? Mm-hmm. Like I get to move on. But I have to abandon people. I have to abandon some friendships and some relationships. And I got to move on with my life now. Figure out what's next. Yeah. You know, I remember driving. Next day, I decided I'm going to go back to Richmond. Driving back into town. There's like parents finding out. Because small town, man. There's mm-hmm. always small town gossip. I became part of it. People start calling me and they're like, what, what happened? Like one mom called me crying. What happened? Oh my gosh. What can we do? All these parents were like, we're going to get your job back. And like, don't. It's okay. It's cool. We're cool. Get back into town. I actually meet up with David again. And he says, hey, take all the time you need. Talk to the people you need. See the people you need to see before you leave. You know, talk to my boys before you leave. I was like, cool. So that's what I did. Took all the time I needed. I said I was going to take the next... I think I said three and a half weeks. It's been three and a half more weeks in Richmond. Go on the Evan Maine's farewell tour. Mm-hmm. Head home. And I will say uh, it was a strange time. Very, very strange. And like you just felt dejected a little bit. Yeah. Like detached. Walking around town like, hey, you guys remember me? I don't work here anymore. I don't mm-hmm. I'm not here anymore. And yet still there was ministry to be done. Like yeah. at the day, three days after I got fired, a kid in town 
they found out he had a brain tumor. Mm. And they asked me to lead a prayer night for him. Mm. So I like donned the jersey one more time, yeah. put on my church t-shirt, yeah. and went and led worship and at prayer night for this kid. And, I, and it's because it's what I wanted to do. I wanted, I wanted to believe healing was possible for this kid. Lily's phone, right? She gave it to me at camp. I lost it. Uh, I was back in, in Richmond, yeah. and they just sent out an email to all the staff at this church mm-hmm. telling, hey, Evan Maines is leaving staff. They were very kind to me. HR gave me like extra few weeks of severance just because they wanted to help me out. They they let me, like, they didn't go and like email and say, Evan's been let go and this and this. They've been like, hey, he's, he's Evan's leaving staff. Mm-hmm. If you have any questions, feel free to talk to him directly. Like they weren't even creating like a veil between me and the rest of the people. And so I had a lot of people calling and reaching out. Mm-hmm. Some of the people was like, uh, like Austin Living Good reached out and Malcolm Henderson reached out. And, and my good friend Andy Lay calls me. You know Andy Lay, mutual friend of ours. Yep. Uh, he has been on Xbox for 140 days straight, I think, at this point. <laughs> Pray uh, for the banana. <laughs> he calls me, and and he said this really beautiful truth to me about this is a time where you get to be self-interested as opposed to being selfish. Mm-hmm. Like, that is a profound lesson I think about every day because of what Andy said. And being self-interested looks like, what do I, maybe leaving means growth. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a direction I need to take. Being selfish would be like, well, I'm going to live in Richmond and kind of linger around and not let go of something that is not mine to care about anymore. Yeah. So all the while Andy's talking to me, my roommate runs up and he's banging on my door. I'm like, hold on. Well, I'm on the phone. What? David Aldridge is like, you need to come downstairs right now. Like, okay. So apparently what had happened while I was up in my room, we're starting, I'm starting to pack my stuff up to leave. Yeah. I got some moving boxes. Um, uh, they find one of my roommates, David Meikle, uh, found my old backpack, Black Oakley bag I talked mm-hmm. about. He tips it over and a phone falls out. <laughs> and I come downstairs and, and Meikle didn't know what he just found. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, dude, free phone. Cool. No idea. No idea. David Aldridge is like, you do not understand the weight of your discovery <laughs> i come downstairs and on my desk in our living room because that's where my desk was was a phone charging and i'm like what is that what is that and i look in the screensaver is lily and her oh. friend riley frozen in time from 2019 <laughs> and i'm like, no way and I like call. I had to call someone immediately because I just thought it was so crazy. I called yeah. like two of the female leaders who were at camp that year. Told them they were crazy, crazy like freaking out about it. I called Tammy Dobbins. Tammy, you'll never guess what just fell out of an old bag that I haven't used since 2019. She said, "Shut up, shut up." And like Lily was with her that night. I went and returned the phone. All the photos were back, mm-hmm. and and it felt like uh, I'm like, why did that happen mm-hmm. at that time? Yeah. I just lost my job. 
life is strange. And yet when that phone fell out of that backpack and I got to return it, it was like a reminder, like I didn't suck at my job. Yeah. I was good at what I did. I loved what I did. And this was like a final hoorah of like, Hey, like God's like, you're, you're good. Yeah. You're fine. You'll be okay. So the following year was, was great. Hmm. I traveled. I went to Phoenix, uh, to see some old friends that actually lived in Richmond. They moved out to Phoenix, got to spend a week with them, which was great and cathartic. Got to go to Los Angeles, Hmm. do a a photo shoot out there for some friends, which was really great. And all that time to travel alone was just good introspection. Like, Oh, thank God. Like I'm just, I just get to sit in the quiet for a little bit, whether it's on an airplane or it's on a hillside and Phoenix or in Los Angeles. Like that was really good. And, uh, I just remember thinking like, man, I want the, I want Jesus to win. Mm-hmm. I don't want any kind of brand or church to be the, the end all be all for anybody. It reshaped my focus on ministry. I immediately started doing ministry again. Yeah. Like I never stopped doing ministry. Yeah. Uh, I took a year off from doing full-time ministry, but instantly jumped back in like, yeah, why wouldn't I, Yeah. why wouldn't I continue doing this? So that was, uh, the year that followed was really eye-opening, allowed me to be creative. Got to direct a film called Trash Wife during that time. Got to return to some filmmaking roots during that time. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know. That's That was really interesting. This is, and I, I, I expect, like, as I'm thinking, like, okay, how do I produce this? How do I release this? How do I tell this story? And I'm like, have to be okay with the fact that this is not going to impact people the way I think normally this would go. You know, like, like if this is just a podcast, like I'm having people tell stories, it's not two hours long, whatever. But this is a, this is like a special thing yeah. where I'm like, before I move on, I think this is good to get off my chest. Good to release this. Cause it's funny, even though it's, it's been two years since all this has happened, uh, it still comes up in my hmm. mind. It still comes up like, ah, oh, man, like what if. You know, and like when I left four, five months later, the campus closed. Yeah. Closed. Boss calls me up. I think you should come down and, 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 and be here. Mm. And I'm like, w- w- where else does that happen? Yeah. You get fired and yet you're still a part of that community to where, hey, because we're closing and we're closing up shop and where the ship is sinking, we want you to come. Yeah. Um. I guess with that, I'm curious as a follower of Jesus, as someone who wants to emulate him and his ministry, his life, he was constantly surrounded by broken people. Right. Do you feel like you failed? I don't. And I am still actively releasing that Mm. because now I'm back doing full-time ministry mm-hmm. for different... It's actually the church I went to in high school that I love so much. I'm mm-hmm. working with former mentors and youth pastors of mine. My favorite person of all time, Gary Clark, is my boss. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite people, at least. And uh, I'm back in it. Mm-hmm. And when I was asked to come back, I was nervous. I didn't know if I wanted to come back. I was kind of hesitant. And I was. I prayed about it. I actually visited Richmond one last time. I was like, okay, I think I have gas left in the tank to keep going. Mm. But I told them, 
in this new season, you have got to let me do the kind of ministry I feel called to do. Mm-hmm. And that ministry is not far off at all from what the ministry Jesus did. Mm-hmm. If, if anyone is to look at someone who is spending time with the tax collectors or the Pharisee, the widow, the prostitute, whoever, and look at them and call them a failure, uh, that's a shame. Mm-hmm. It's a shame. And I found myself on that weird receiving end of that. And sure, there were immature things that I could have done better to be better at my job. Mm-hmm. But I also at the same time felt like I was doing what I could do, yeah. what I could manage, what I could go after. And at the end of the day, your spreadsheets, mm-hmm. your your numbers, your execution of events, your lights, your sounds, your guitars, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I realized, I also said, hey, I don't, now I'm at a different church and I told them, I don't want people to fall in love with this church. I want it to, I want it to be like a support for what we do, a platform for what we do. I want people to fall in love with Jesus. Yeah. Um, and if we're doing that, we'll never have to worry about if we failed or not. Yeah. And I'm not going to let anyone tell me that I have failed. If I can lay down at the end of the day and say, I went after the broken. I went after the people that are hopeless. I spent time or, or was intentional or vulnerable with people who need to see that Jesus is still active, that Christ is still active, the Holy Spirit is still active, then I don't have to worry that, ah, man, you know, I didn't spend enough time on emails today. Mm-hmm. Ah, you know, I uh, didn't, didn't get that spreadsheet turned in. I didn't, you know, uh, Jesus didn't work at a desk, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't... What I was asking to be released from was this idea that I did fail. Mm. And I think God showed me pretty quickly that I didn't fail, yeah. despite the perception that I did. And like I said, the following events were like finding the phone, you know, leading worship for this kid, Trey, um, this kid named Trey who, who had the brain tumor, mm. who's alive still. He's still alive, like he's alive today, doing well. And uh, and then the camp is closing. You know, it's like I, I got to hop off the ship before it sank. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Again, Scott Avid always says, no hard feelings, man. As I press stop on the recording, it feels strange to sum up multiple years of my life into a two-hour conversation. A journey that started for me at 18 years old. Today, as I said before on this birthday, I'm 27. I'm reminded of the importance of looking back at the road that we've just come down, only to find we still have a long road ahead to get back home. Home, for many people, means different things. Back home to God, home to family and friends, home to reconnection with someone or something that was once lost. It feels aimless, but it's the small and the mundane daily grind I find myself in that feels like home. Loving who I am, loving who I'm surrounded by, being content with the mistakes and successes I have made along the way. I truly can say that there are no hard feelings. I'm happy to be here, and I'm grateful to be alive. I just want to say thanks to all the listeners of this episode. I'm thankful for what I get to do. We have a whole new season coming at you with new stories, new guests. And if you have a story yourself that you'd like to share, be a part of, be on the podcast, we have many different ways you can do that. 
We have opportunities for live recordings, sit-downs, and interviews. We have phone call interviews and Zoom interviews. We also have the ability to allow listeners to record stories themselves to submit for the show. I'm hoping that this show is full and holistic and gives many people new opportunities to be storytellers every day. However, podcast or not, we should all be storytellers. It is a great privilege to tell stories, a great privilege to share and listen to stories. And I do believe that storytelling is one of the greatest uh, adhesives that we have. So tune in soon. We have a whole season coming up, as I said. Like, share, subscribe, turn on notifications, whatever it takes. This is The Road Back, and I'm your host, Evan Maines. Thank you. Thank you.